Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. I'm very honored and uh, privileged to have on the podcast today, Darren Asimoglu. Darren is an Institute Professor of Economics in the Department of Economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And also he's with the National Bureau of Economic Research and Center for Economic Policy Research. He has a bachelor's in economics from the University of York, a master's in mathematical economics and econometrics from the London School of Economics. And he also has a PhD in economics from the London School of Economics. And he has held academic positions of lecturer at London School of Economics and also at MIT. He is a fellow of the National Academy of Sciences, the British Academy, the American Philosophical Society, the Turkish Academy of Sciences, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, European Economic Association, and Society of Labor Economists. His work has been published in many journals, uh, including the American Economic Review, Journal of Political Economy, Quarterly Journal Economics, and Review of Economic Studies, uh, covering a wide range of topics from political economy, economic development and growth, human capital theory, uh, etc. He is the author of numerous books. Uh, some of them you may know, uh, one of them being Why Nations Fail, The Origins of Power, Prosperity, and Poverty, James Robinson. He also is the author of The Narrow Corridor, States, Societies, and the Fate of Liberty, also with James Robinson. And he is the author of the latest book, Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity, with Simon Johnson. It goes without saying uh, that Daron is one of the best economists in the world. Um, he writes with on so many topics, mostly on inequality, um, and he was a real joy and a pleasure to to speak with about his latest book. We talk about technological progress and how that's a choice and how we define progress. We talk about the power of persuasion. We talk about needs and innovations. We talk about what were the innovations and how globalization and automation impacted uh, the global economy and in the United States post-World War II and what that looked like. We talk about AI, and we talk about the cultural impact that it's having. And then we end the conversation by talking about how to fix the challenges of um, technology and, and inequality. Again, it, it, was a, it was an absolute pleasure and joy to talk with him. Um, I've, as I say in the conversation, I mean, why, why Nations Fail was a, you know, kind of, you know, hit me over like a ton of bricks. It was a fabulous book, and I read it when it came out. Uh, and since, I've, you know, I've read The Narrow Corridor, but the the latest one really was uh, superb. It's a fantastic book. I highly recommend uh, all of his books, and, and definitely the most recent one. Folks should get out there and, and read his work and, and support him. Um, he's doing great research and great things. And uh, it was it was such an exciting conversation to have. As always, you can find this conversation and all other conversations at Convergent Dialogues at Substack.com. I'm also on YouTube. So get over there, uh, subscribe and follow and, and share widely with uh, folks that you think would be interested in the podcast. And so now I bring you Naron Asimalu. I am here with Naron Asimoglu, excuse me, I know I butchered that. Uh, thanks so much for for coming on the podcast. I uh, I'm very very excited to uh, to talk with you. 
Thank you, Xavier. I, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Yes, yes, of course. As we were just saying, we you have uh, you've written a, a fantastic trilogy. It's a it's a hat trick in uh, in my mind. I don't know if they're all kind of connected, but uh, why nations fail, the narrow corridor, and the new one, power and progress: a thousand year struggle over technology and prosperity. Uh, it's really really fantastic. So um, I will talk about power and progress. Um, but before we do, just tell listeners um, who you are, uh, both professionally and academically, and then uh, what you're uh, currently up to. Excellent. Well, my name is Darren Asamoglu. I am an institute professor at MIT, and uh, I am an economist and social scientist by training. And I am interested in questions of long-run economic development, inequality, and technological change and the three books that you so kindly mentioned cover different aspects of the same problem they're all very distinct but i also see them as deeply connected because they pursue a set of questions that i started asking myself when i was a teenager actually uh, growing up in turkey trying to understand and make sense of how things related to the economy, democracy were dysfunctional around me and why they looked different and worse in some parts of the world and much better in some other parts of the world. And that was the journey that took me to study economics at the University of York, then at the London School of Economics. And I was fortunate enough to land a job at MIT about 30 years ago. And uh, it's been a whirlwind tour, but I've been really intellectually stimulated by my colleagues and uh, the broader profession uh, in the social science world, in the uh, public commentary world. And uh, these books are my attempt to make sense of my own ideas and 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 reach a broader audience with these ideas. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask, I mean, you, you, you know, why Nations Fail was, was super, super powerful for me that, you know, poverty is not just uh, something that happens. There's definitely movers and shakers there um, uh, for, for better, for worse. And um you know, there's there's this way of capturing these big, 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 big ideas about inequality, um, but to a general audience. And so this isn't, you know, a, a paper to to your colleagues, you know, in academia. You're writing for a general audience, but it, it's still filled with so much rich content um, and there's so much to to kind of pull from it. So I guess I guess for you, how, how has that experience been of trying to kind of, you know, distill and synthesize all of these big, big, big ideas, especially from an economic world? into you know I, a space for laymen like like or lay women like uh, myself uh, and, and many folks that uh, that want to know about this and, and should know about it well i first of all i think it's been amazingly gratifying you know when i started writing my first book which was joined with james robinson with whom i co-authored why nations fail and narrow corridor it was something that jim sort of imposed on me writing a book wasn't on my agenda, I was, you know, happy to swim in my corner and write academic articles and talk to a slightly broader uh, circle than perhaps the pure academics, but 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 definitely not venture into this game. And Jim forced it upon me, and I'm thankful and grateful to him for doing that. And it's been an amazing journey for me to work with Jim on many of the critical articles that uh were the basis of the books that we wrote and then uh for co-authoring these books and some uh, other broader outreach articles with me mm. 
But the reason why I find it so gratifying, although it was hard work at first not having tried this genre uh, and, 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 and force yourself to write for a broader audience with less jargon mm. and, uh, and, and in a way that, that sort of makes it interesting so that the ideas can find their own footing. Uh, but it's also been amazing because writing a book forces you to be more holistic. Mm. It's not enough to say, I have an possible explanation for this phenomenon. I found this little thing. It sort of forces you to sort of try to bring everything together. You know, how do they fit together and how the outlying cases are a challenge or are not a challenge? And how do you need to broaden your uh, ideas in order to make sense of the huge social science puzzles that are around us, such as how is it that today in this amazingly connected, globalized, unified world, we have some countries that are 50 times as prosperous as others. We have so much poverty in the United States, one of the most dynamic societies in the world. And how is it that we are in the midst of, you know, one of the most exciting periods in terms of innovativeness, new applications and new programs, new algorithms, new lang large language models, new widgets around us all the time. But we don't seem to be growing any faster than we did 30 years ago, and we're growing slower than we did 50 years ago. So there are some big puzzles out there. And I think they defy the simplest explanation. So we have to bring different uh, sort of ideas together. And that's uh, really one of the things that Simon Johnson and I have attempted to do in Power and Progress. So the central question I have, so we not as you masterfully uh, do in the in the book, we won't cover a thousand years now, but uh, <laughs> but the well, central let's, let's go for ten thousand. Why not? <laughs> let's go for ten thousand. Right. We, we this one of the central questions I see in the book is you make this claim that technological progress is a, is a choice, right? It's it's not something that just happens, much like some of your earlier works. And so we're trying to find the big movers behind some of these things. So instead of answering that question kind of head on, maybe you can kind of do a few things at once here is we, we talk about progress <clears throat> and you, you talk about it in the book about how we define what that is. And you, you say that progress is enriching a smaller and, and smaller group of investors and everyone else isn't feeling all the progress. And maybe that's why a lot of people feel like, yeah, maybe, maybe we're making progress economically, uh, maybe socially in some parts of the world and other parts not. It doesn't feel that way because it is kind of a small bunch of folks. And so how do you how do you define what progress looks like now as maybe as opposed to what it did 30 years ago even and how that is kind of more of this, this choice of sorts of where we go? Yeah, I think those are some of the key issues we try to tackle in the book. And the word progress is definitely in the title to partly signal that it is an ambiguous word. Technological progress, that means advances in technology. How could that be bad? And today, in the United States especially, where we have become more techno technology-obsessed and techno-optimistic, to be frank, mm -hmm. we do equate broader societal progress with technological progress. We immediately and by we here, I don't mean Simon and myself. We as a society, the journalists, the opinion leaders, jump from seeing something like ChatGPT4. Mm -hmm. That is a technological advance. It has some impressive capabilities. It goes beyond what many people in the field of computer science thought was feasible two years ago. 
So we equate that with more holistic type of progress. But is it? You know, if we have ChatGPT, for example, rolled out in schools in a way that destroys existing curricula and makes it impossible for students to be tested on their knowledge or be assigned homework, or it uh, sort of makes existing teaching plans inapplicable, it could actually set us back by two generations. Mm. Is that progress? Mm. Or we, an example we only mentioned in passing in the book, but I think it's quite apt, you know, amazing technological progress at the early stages of the 20th century was the Haber-Bosch process in chemical engineering that sort of transforms uh, atmospheric nitrogen into uh, into usable synthetic nitrogen. So that's the basis of synthetic fertilizers, for example. An amazing discovery, which of course built on the shoulders of previous uh, technological advances. But then it was used for building bigger, much more powerful explosives that killed hundreds of thousands of people. Mm. Is that progress? So technology is what you make of it. And I think that's broadly recognized in scientific writings and in social science circles, but it gets forgotten when we talk about new advances. But even more deeply, we also claim the direction of technological progress is not just a sort of a preordained path of we're going to do the scientific discoveries that are feasible on us. There's a lot of different direction in which we can push science and we can push our applied knowledge. And they have different consequences. Again, choices everywhere, agencies everywhere. Yeah, it's it's interesting as you're saying that. It makes me think of, well, I wonder if for a long time in the 20th century, um, even even for myself, you know, when when something would come out, it was you know, something new every six months. There was something something new in the age of computers and the internet, and even before that, right? You have all throughout the 20th century, and for the most part, there would be people that would be worried about things, but it always felt very. It was new. It was it was novel. It was exciting. It was how does it make many people's lives easier, et cetera. And I wonder if when we see things that way now, um, we're still having that kind of way of thinking about it. Of like, well, it's well, it's new, so it's going to help us. And maybe it it isn't always that way. You can do things, and it will not necessarily be helpful for all types of people. Is is that about right? Absolutely right. And, you know, let me put it another way is that I think part of the difficulty here and a little trap for many policymakers, policy wonks and academics is that, you know, I think you have to hold two potentially conflicting ideas in your head at the same time. The first one is that we are all so much more prosperous, so much more comfortable, so much healthier than people who lived 300 years ago. And that's largely because of industrial technology and the application of scientific ideas to every spheres of our lives. Mm -hmm. So there technology gets a big, big, big plus. We owe technology our much more enriched, comfortable lives, and we should be thankful for that. But the other key idea is that there was nothing automatic about this event. There wasn't a preordained path of technology. It wasn't inevitable that industrial technology would bring broadly shared prosperity and better health, better comfort. It wasn't preordained that we would create 
democratic institutions to govern over these technologies. All of these were outcomes of struggles. And in fact, there are many major technological moments in history where we did not make the right choices or the institutional embedding was very different than what we now take for granted and very different outcomes resulted. Let me give you two examples. One uh, from the U.S., where the U.S. South was especially deep south, was an economic backwater before the invention of Eli Whitney's cotton gin, which enabled cotton uh, that could be grown in the south be cleaned and turned into yarn that then powered the Industrial Revolution all around the world, especially Britain. The U.S. South became the largest exporter of cotton and much, much richer than it was before. But what happened to workers? The workers were the enslaved people whose conditions got much worse. They were moved to the deep south. They started working under greater coercion for longer hours with much more backbreaking conditions. So they became the losers out of, the, out of this amazing technological advance. If you look at the broader set of technological changes that spearheaded this period of improvements that I said we are the beneficiaries, actually they didn't benefit from it much. The Industrial Revolution, which started somewhere in the first half or around the middle of the 18th century, brought no rise or little rise in the real incomes of the working people in Britain. Their working conditions and working hours worsened. They probably worked about 20% more than people did in the first half of the 18th century. They were sh shafted into very, very unhealthy, very, very noisy and difficult working conditions in modern factories. They were put in uh, living conditions much worse than they were in urban areas where diseases were endemic and life expectancy fell at birth fell to something like 30 years. So this was not a short transitory period. It lasted something like 100 years and there was nothing automatic in its reversal. It reversed because institutions changed in the direction of technology change. Britain became democratic. Trade unions were recognized and started working, uh, negotiating over working conditions, asking for higher wages. People started demanding public sanitation and better conditions in the cities. And the new technologies didn't just intend to monitor and eliminate work, but started making workers more productive, hence generating the dynamics that led to higher wages. So when you look at that episode at a very, very macro level, you say, oh, well, you know, things have worked out. But what about those people who lived for 100 years there, three mm -hmm. generations? And mm -hmm. what about if we didn't make those choices? They weren't automatic at all. So in some sense, part of the reason the book is about 1,000 years and is so much historical in focus, even though, you know, part of our motivation is to talk about AI and the advances that we are in the midst of today is because – there is this very, 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 very misleading argument that you hear all the time. For example, you know, when I started working on these topics of automation, robots, and, uh, you know, what digital technologies are doing, you know, for the last 15 years, the argument that I hear in policy circles and in some academic circles when I present my work is, are you saying that this time is different? Because we know from history that new technologies have worked out quite well. So you must be saying this time is different with the hidden meaning or not so hidden meaning that you must be wrong. You're just being a bit of a uh, you know naysayer. But actually, no, this time is no different. If you look at all the major technological transitions, emergence of agriculture, new new advances with windmills, the, uh, the cotton gin, uh, oceanic trade, uh, commercial revolution, industrial revolution, all of them have this struggle over 
what types of technologies we're going to use, how we're going to use them, who's going to benefit, how we're going to share the gains, and what types of institutions we're going to build around them. This time is no different. We're just fooling ourselves by thinking that in the past things have seamlessly worked somehow, and we could just check out and go home and play our video games or uh, get engaged on social media, and everything's going to work out. I think that's a very, very dangerous misconception. Mm. Yeah, I would totally agree with you there. I think that um, the more and more you look at it, the more and more you see it. And I think that's what makes it the, the book great is that you're talking, you're giving all the historical kinds of evidence that's showing like this, this isn't, this isn't new. This isn't the first time. The, I guess the, the one thing when you were talking earlier is this question I have is, I guess how, how past and present you, you can kind of go between or, or you could give the example of the Panama Canal because there was, there was a, there, that was a fascinating story. Um, how are technologies manipulated for a particular vision of the parties that control the technologies? And this getting into this element of uh, at at the creation aspect of of how it's being manipulated, but then there's this persuasive aspect as well within global economies and how they go to various nation states. So you, maybe you can use the example of the Panama Canal or another one. But... I will use the example of Panama Canal, but yeah, let me let yeah. me let me go back one step because you were kind enough to mention why nations fail. And you know the main thesis of why nations fail was exactly like you said, you know, poverty is not something that just happens by mistake or uh you know, for unintended purposes. It is something that's created by the institutions that we build. And most of the institutions that societies build are done so by the most powerful elements, the those who control political power, economic power, military power. And they do shape these institutions to benefit themselves, which often works out not to be so good for people who work for them or for people whose property rights they, uh, they, they trample upon. Mm. So, Elite power often needs to be constrained if we're going to get better outcomes. And the same is true when it comes to technology. But in the modern world, the power that's most deeply intertwined with technology choice is not military power. Facebook, Elon Musk, Sam Altman, they don't control tanks. They don't control the police. They have something actually that's more more powerful and more valuable today, persuasion power. They have visions and they sell us on their vision. So one of those visions is tech is going to benefit us all. It's going to make all everything about us more valuable. So you shouldn't fret about your data, your privacy, you know, all these mega companies. Another one is, you know, what we should be striving for is this autonomous machine intelligence. These are these machines that are, can do everything as well as we can. And in the at the altar of that, we can sacrifice a few lambs. Hmm. So all of those are visions. And what we do in the book is show that actually they were similar visions, mm. often intertwined with techno-optimism, and they have many commonalities with today in that the most powerful emissaries of these visions are people who are charismatic and who have been successful in early stages of the technology's rollout. So the person that we tell that story uh, 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 via whom we tell that story is is Ferdinand de Lesseps, who was the techno-optimist uh, extraordinaire of his of the second half of the 19th century, mm-hmm. he single-handedly had a very optimistic, very bold plan for building the Suez Canal. He made it possible via negotiation and charisma to convince many politicians, including Egyptians, to allow the canal give it 
favorable conditions, including coarse labor that the French engineers could use. He believed in uh, an uh, oncoming commercial explosion. And for that reason, he thought that a Panama Canal, oh, sorry, a Suez Canal that would be built at the sea level so that you would not have to slow down ships would be much more uh, uh, much more useful for a big volume of oceanic trade. And that would also enable enough ships to go from the Suez Canal that people would make enough money from this huge public works project. And he jumped into it blindly because the technology that would be necessary for the dredging and building and moving of earth that would be involved in the Suez Canal wasn't there, but he had a dogged belief in man of genius would rise to meet my technological needs type of idea. And, you know, lo and behold, he turned out to be wrong. And he was even called the, uh, the great Frenchman of the, of the time because of his success and his charisma. But then the, the real apex of his career was going to be the Panama Canal, to which he brought the same techno-optimism without taking full account of the differences in conditions, how a canal without locks at the sea level would not be feasible at Panama, how building in the same way as he did in Suez would not be feasible because of diseases such as yellow fever and malaria. And at the end, the whole thing was a failure. Thousands of people met financial ruin, 22,000 people, including some of the brightest uh, French engineers who were sent there, died. Uh, his own family ended up in jail. So it was his own ruin, the destruction of his own reputation. But that's part of what, the, what we want to tell with this story, that people themselves get trapped in their own vision. So I don't doubt that the tech leaders believe that machine intelligence uh, is both desirable and feasible, and they are pushing that agenda, probably fooling themselves about uh, forgetting some of the difficulties and fooling themselves that by enriching themselves, are actually they're, they're actually doing a great social service to society. Okay, so here's here's where I'm I'm curious. Here is. <clears throat> Sometimes I would imagine in certain certain periods you will have a need. There will be a need for something, and in many of the stories that you detail in the book, there's this. Uh, there there might be a need, or there's a way of connecting people, connecting people through uh, uh, transit or economic connection, or in some cases socially. And I guess the question becomes: Is sometimes people will will innovate? or invent uh, out of a need. Oh, there's this thing. We can't do this. How can we make something that makes our lives easier or better? Or sometimes, sometimes people are very, very big visionaries and they will create something that we didn't think or know that we needed. And then it becomes so instrumental here, right? So like, um, I'm thinking of, you know, Edison, right? With the the light bulb, right? That was, it was huge, right? It's huge. Uh, and then that story of like how that, took off with electricity and then how it became, you know, monopolized and the whole thing. But then you have someone like Steve Jobs, who, again, more recent, um, but, you know, I mean, in, in his story is, is incredible in different ways, but a true visionary. I mean, a true visionary in so much that people didn't think they needed a tablet. Now everyone uses them. Right? <laughs> people didn't think they needed, you know, all of the different types of inventions that were were cr created or, or, or put together that 
he did it largely by his vision. So I guess when you have these kinds of, you know, these kind of two ways of doing things, who, this is the hard question, right? This is all, I can hear all of my conservative friends, you know, start automatically, you know, getting triggered by is, well, who's going to put the brakes on this? Who's going to give the regulatory pieces to this? Where's the ethics board to say that's too far, that's too much, or you're, you're leaving these people out and not considering these people. And how do we, I guess I'm kind of getting ahead here, but how do we understand if we have all of this history where, as you just mentioned, um, you know, so many people die or so many people have all of these horrible things or many people are left out. Well, if we could do it better, how, how do we have these ways of understanding persuasion, of understanding, uh, you know, how technologies can be manipulated? So they, so how can we fix that? So it's not, what do you, how do you think about that? Well, first of all, I think you're raising many, many interesting issues, uh, probably too many for me to be able to tackle in one answer, but let me take my time and do so. First of all, yes, absolutely. Well, you're 100% right. Uh, many innovations respond to needs, to labor scarcity, to uh, problems that previous technologies have created so that you solve them with yet new technologies, mm -hmm. to natural risks. Esther Bosser, an important social scientist, writing in the middle of the 20th century, wrote, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. That's true. But at the same time, technologies create their own needs, their own markets. We didn't know we needed app developers. That's one of the biggest occupations today. People in the 1930s would have not thought that we would need management consultants. Well, we can debate whether we need them today, but that's a big, big, big industry. Yes. And Steve Jobs, absolutely. I mean, I think he created a market for something that people didn't think they needed. Mobile music players, then smartphones and tablets. Now, in all of these cases, and some of your conservative friends might emphasize this and they would be right, this was not a controllable, forecastable, or centrally planned activity. Mm -hmm. It was very granular. Steve Jobs was a genius in ways, but he did not invent these things out of pure cloth. Uh, you know, he was building on previous innovations, for example, in Xerox Park, that had important advances in controlling usable devices, uh, <clears throat> screens that you could write on. A hypertext and mobility enhanced devices. Those themselves came from the early work that people who worked under a very different vision than the one that has become dominant today, uh, emphasizing machine intelligence, were pushing people uh, <clears throat> such as JCR Licklider or uh, <clears throat> Doug Engelhardt that emphasized how we could build digital technologies that were complementary to humans, that were more easily usable to humans, which went to things like the computer mouse, hypertext, and uh, and, and linked uh, information and so on. Mm. The internet built on that, and the internet and that sort of advance was also critical in, to the smartphones and out of which, you know, uh, uh, Steve Jobs was able to build those very, very creative new devices. Now, what do I bring? What? How do I interpret all of these things? Well, first of all, if the conservative position is that those are things that only the market can do, that you couldn't come up with such new products 
that create their own needs. I completely agree with that. Mm. I think having government organized innovation, bureaucrats deciding what products, what new demands they are going to be. I think that's that's a pipe dream. That's never going to work. I don't think we have an alternative to the market when it comes to innovation. Yeah. I'm completely uh, on the same side as the people who emphasize the importance of the market there. Mm-hmm. Yet, that doesn't mean that everything the market does is right, nor yeah. does it mean that there is an inherent self-control mechanism within the market. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The market can create more capable poison gases as well as you know, synthetic fertilizers. Mm-hmm. The market, if we let it, will create more and more coal-powered plants and uh, fossil fuel technologies and bigger and bigger cars because neither the producers nor the users of these cars are paying the cost that carbon emissions impose on the planet. Mm -hmm. So the market's not going to internalize all of these effects. And what if the technologies, the way we use them, the way we develop them, creates tremendous inequalities when there are alternatives that would not create those same inequalities while also generating the same type of economic growth or possibilities. You know, if the beneficiary, if those who are the beneficiaries of those inequalities are in control, they're going to like those inequalities. That's not about the market per se. It's about who controls the markets, who controls the companies, and who controls the innovation process. So those are hugely consequential choices and that's why when you look at periods of rapid shared growth in history there there were times such as the 1950s 60s 70s when the market was very important in innovation but it was in the context of the right types of regulations and some amount of oversight from the institutions and the government. So when you look at many important technological breakthroughs in the United States, they received government funding and the government funding was important, not because, you know, bureaucrats decided how, well, in the best case scenario, not because they decided how, you know, the new engines should be built, but they specified a demand for certain types of engines for aircraft or for uh, for fighters in the context of the Cold War. So there are many types of forces that can be articulated by government institutions that help the market function. But you are right, and if your conservative friends make this point, they would be right as well. In the context of AI, we don't know what those are because we are dealing with a such fast-changing such pervasive, ubiquitous technological capabilities and how they will go in the future is so unknown that knowing exactly how to regulate them is a big challenge. But it doesn't mean we should give up. Mm-hmm. That means we should actually put even more effort in understanding that type of regulation. I certainly wouldn't claim and I wouldn't want to dictate, but even if I had that power, I wouldn't claim I know how to regulate AI. Mm-hmm. But my research and my read of history convinces me that that sort of regulation is necessary. I, so I certainly want to come to AI. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving that more towards, towards the end of the conversation so we can, we can land on that. So right before we get to that, you, you already mentioned it, which I, I'm curious about. <clears throat> Still a bit historical, but 
you have, you know, post-World War II, this kind of, you know, uh, explosion of sorts of technology, energy, mechanics, and so many other aspects of growth in the United States, and I think globally as well in certain areas. And you have many, many features of, you know, FDR's New Deal and and many aspects of, you know, trade unions, things like that, you know, late 40s and uh, 50s for sure. Um, so you can, you can tell that story and kind of how it's almost incomplete FDR's kind of vision, mostly because he, he, he died in office, but also where we get out of that as we go through the rest of the 20th century are these, you could say negative aspects of there's maybe positive aspects to it, but negative effects of globalization. And then we start to get some automation in the workforce, you know, post-World War II. So maybe just... What's that story? Because that kind of gets us to a little bit of where we're at now of kind of the automation thing. And now we're just kind of pumping it all the way up. And, you know, this kind of gets machine learning AI. So what, what's that kind of story post-World okay, War Okay, well, th- those, are, those are absolutely central parts of my own academic research and also yeah. of the book. And let me take it in the same order as you raise it, although automation is more important for me. Globalization. There's no doubt that globalization creates tremendous opportunities, and it has always done so. You know, as early as 20,000 years ago, humans were trading uh, goods, you know, across thousands of hundreds of, not thousands, but hundreds of kilometers. Trade has always been important because there are different natural resources, different goods, different competencies, across geography, and we can bring them together. And today, we take advantage of globalization in various different ways. But globalization also destroys as well as it creates. When it happens in an uncontrolled way, it can lead to the bankruptcy of you know, hundreds of companies in ways that create joblessness, uh, you know, depressed communities, it creates thousands, sometimes millions of losers out of that process. So the question is how we handle globalization. It's, it's, in, it's, it's, in, it's incorrect to reduce it to a dichotomy. You're either for autarky, no trade, versus completely unfettered globalization. And I think we've done that a little bit in saying, well, we are, of course, for globalization. So let everything rip and all of the imports from China, even when they are artificially uh, lowly priced, uh, you know, flood into U.S. markets. And the same set of issues, yet in a more subtle way, are there with technology. One of the things that's a central function of new production methods is automation, which means the substitution of machine power, machine competencies, and increasingly algorithms for things, for tasks that humans used to perform before. You know, in 1850, 60% of the U.S. population was in agriculture. Today, that's like 2%. What about all of those tasks that used to be done by human labor combined with animate power? Well, machines do it. Tractors, combine harvesters, and all sorts of other machinery today now uh, empowered more by digital technologies. That's great because some of these were back-breaking, harsh work. Mm-hmm. Many of those jobs didn't pay very high wages. But it would have still been a disaster if we destroyed the jobs that 
50-60% of the population was performing and created nothing in its place. That would have been mass unemployment. That's not what happened in the United States. As agriculture was becoming mechanized, the U.S. economy also created thousands of new tasks in manufacturing, in clerical work, in services, in education, in healthcare. And it was these jobs that became the engine of wage growth. And that's why we were on the path to shared prosperity even before World War II, before the Great Depression. And we landed on it much more firmly in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. So that highlights the multiple functions of technologies. It can automate work, or it can create, and it can create new activities, new tasks for humans. In the best case scenario, we do both of them. We automate some work, hopefully the less interesting, more physically demanding, more routine parts of the production process, and we create more meaningful, more knowledge-based, more interesting, more autonomy, providing new tasks for workers at the same time. But there is no guarantee that it will happen. And if it doesn't happen, then we have a very powerful process in our hands that will generate gains for entrepreneurs, business owners, top managers, but won't create anything like shared prosperity because it won't boost wages. It will not boost labor demand. It will not increase employment and it will not trigger companies to pay higher wages. The sort of the story that you may want to have in your mind is this often repeated parable of the future of the modern factory where there will be only two employees and men and a dog. The man is there to feed the dog and the dog is there to make sure that the man doesn't touch the machinery. Well, if that's the direction we're going, there won't be much room for humans. And if there isn't much room for humans, how can you expect that they're going to be paid such high wages? You know, after all, even a very profitable modern factory will not rush to hire seven men and seven dogs so that you know they all feed each other. No, they will just go workerless. That's not a recipe for shared prosperity. But in the book, we also developed the argument that that's not actually very good for productivity either because human creativity is unmatched. Making use of your workers is actually one of the best things that a company can do. You know, the, the way that I put it to when I talk to business leaders, is how do you think when you envisage your workers? Are they a cost to be cut or a resource to be employed? Hmm. If it's the latter, then you invest in their training and you invest in machinery that will make them more productive. You create a good environment for them. You create goodwill, a nice relationship with them. They become part of the family. If it's the latter, you automate work, you try to cut wages, you introduce more and more surveillance technologies, but that doesn't make you more productive. Hmm. There's so many interesting things here. So I, I, and I agree with what you're saying. I think it's so when we get to automation now, I guess the first question, one of the first questions that comes to my mind here is, well, <laughs> if we have things so automated, whether we don't even have to get to, to, to AI specifically, we can just get to some types of machine learning, but let's say we take both. <laughs> is there a space where humans don't have the need to do most jobs anymore. Maybe that's in a hundred years, maybe that's 300 years, whatever. But you know, how do we, what would that mean? And the, and the, the psychological question there is how much of our humanity is tied into our work and how much we are doing things actively. And if you take 
maybe you could say an essential aspect of what it means to be human. How do we how do we thrive? How do we prosper? Uh, or if you're doing that for different groups, what, what do you what do you think there? I guess that this future. Well, there's what we're so many with. there's so many issues you're raising. Fantastic set of issues and ones I have spent many sleepless nights worrying about. <laughs> so let me first say I can't speak to what will happen in 300 years, 200 years, or 100 years, but I can safely say that whatever tech barons tell you, we are not going to have a workless, workerless future in the next 50 years. Mm -hmm. The capabilities of new technologies that are quite impressive are still no match for many of the versatile activities that humans engage in. And that's, I think, is going to be so. We know for the next 10 years, 20 years, and I don't see any path to changing that in the next 50 years. However, that being said, I also see a very likely path in which, despite this, many companies fueled by technological optimism and tech industries' emphasis on the types of tools that they develop will over-automate. Take, for example, radiologists or customer service representatives or, <clears throat> or, 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 or lawyers. There are many aspects of these jobs that should not be automated. Mm. And if you automate them with the technologies we have today or we will have in the next two decades or so, you are going to sacrifice quality and productivity, but still many companies may rush to do so. So that's one path where, you know, what I think is feasible and advisable may not coincide with what the market will deliver because there isn't a market. It's like what a few tech companies decide in terms of how to design their algorithm. And it's a few bosses who are often, you know, motivated by short-term profit and issues of control over their workers rather than long-term productivity, how they decide to use these tools. So that's one issue. The second is if that happens, even if it doesn't bring mass unemployment, and quite frankly, I think fears of mass unemployment are exaggerated. Oftentimes when we introduce automation technology, what we do is we cut wages and we create more inequality rather than mass unemployment. So none, nothing I see in the horizon will lead to mass unemployment in 20, 30 years. But it may take us towards a two-tiered society, to a society in which a very small group of engineers, entrepreneurs, computer scientists are capturing most of the value created. They have the high prestige jobs. They become fabulously wealthy, and the vast majority of the population work for much lower pay, with much lower status, and with much less enriching occupations. And heck, you know, we're halfway there already. 60% of the U.S. population is without a college degree and has not experienced much gain in their real incomes. And we have developed this ethos in this country, which almost claims that not having a college degree is a character flaw. Mm -hmm. So we are not, you know, making good use of the talents of hundreds of millions of people in this country. 
You know, yes. I think a carpenter, an electrician, mm-hmm. a gardener, mm-hmm. a customer service rep, they have unique skills and unique contribution to society. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we should and we should cherish that and we should provide them respect, tools, social status for doing these very important jobs. We don't do that in this country. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, no, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, it's it, it's there's a it's a very frustrating thing about that because each has value, right? When I when I go and I get my car and I get the tires rotated and the belts changed and the oil changed, I, I can't. I can't. I mean, I I could probably at some point learn to do that, but I, yeah, I, another I, ten years of training for I, me and then I can change a tire. Yes, <laughs> right. I, I I rely on that, and that has just as much value as what I do or as what you do. Exactly. Those things Absolutely. have value Absolutely. to, to, to those, and it, those look, skills. No, no, it took me a while to realize this. You know, I was in the same bubble mm. that I thought. You know, I played a more important role in society because I was a professor than mm-hmm. you know somebody who you know did the electrical electrical work in my apartment mm-hmm. but that's not so I think they are they have some unique skills and unique competences and they have no less important voice in the future of our society yeah I I, I totally agree with that so here's here's the question I have because many people talk about you know AI and, and things like that now I guess the question I have, Right, which is really for, for, specifically for 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 you and and where you're kind of in this space is, it does seem that there is a very small handful of people that are creating or innovating or producing various technologies. So I'll say, <clears throat> I've used social media like many people have. Uh, I think Amazon is fantastic. I think, you know, I can order something in two days. It's here. I mean, it's, it's, it's brilliant. It's amazing. You know, I using an Apple computer, you know, at the moment, all of these things are great, but it does feel like at this point, I've been thinking about this over the past, uh, couple of months over the past year or so that it does seem that for millions of people, maybe billions of people, you know, in mass we're all beholden or all following the small group of innovators that, you know, whether it's in, in Silicon Valley or whether it's other places that are determining, here's the next thing. Here's the next space. Well, now we're going to do this, right? And we don't, for most people, don't have, you know, maybe the brains or, or the, the innovation for it or the vision for it. We certainly don't have money or, or accessibility for it, but the problem with these aspects of there's many great things about them, but they are dominating so much of our lives that we 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 either we either opt in or we're we're on the outside and we have no choice. Even something as simple as yes, you nobody pays for things in cash in much much of the world anymore, right? Now when I go to every place, I have to use the the, the Apple Pay or the Touch thing, which is a great which is a great thing. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, but it's the idea of we push and push and push all these things so fast that you you're almost if you want to be in society you got to join somewhere in there and if you don't then you know you're just out of luck do you see that happening more and more and more and faster and faster and faster and to the point of the book right this this whole idea of power and progress of that inequality is just going to become really stretched there's just going to be this big chasm even further between those that have accessibility or they have the vision or the money 
And for much of the rest of the world, that doesn't. Is that only going to expand? Absolutely. That's my fear. And I think it is on a path to expand. But I would say, no, it's not that you don't have enough brains, that you're not having a voice in that. It's because you and a lot of people like you and like me have lost the democratic muscle. That's why we're not participating in these decisions. Look, I think a telling moment was three months ago when the U.S. Senate finally woke up and decided to learn a little bit about generative AI. And what did they do? They invited the executives of the top five tech companies. That's it. What about the 100 million workers who are going to be affected by the application of these methods? What about the rest of us whose data is being expropriated Mm -hmm. day in and day out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about the rest of the world who are going to follow the U.S.? And ChatGPT is not a U.S. phenomenon. It's a global phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So I think democracy demands that in the same way that you and I should have a voice about what we should do with nuclear power and nuclear weapons, we should also have some voice and some ideas should count about, you know, whether creative data of people like journalists, podcasters, professors, writers should be completely the uh, out there for grabbing or there should be some rights to people who have created those data. They should have a voice in how much privacy we should have and how desirable the type of inequality we're creating in the, at the moment. We start the book, you'll recall, with H.G. Wells's time machine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for two reasons. He was extremely prescient more than 120 years ago in making two observations. One is that he understood deeply that technology was not just about control over nature, but he says it's about man controlling man or human controlling human. Mm. And second... He also understood that if you get that control aspect wrong, you can create a two-tier society in the extreme. In his uh, science fiction movie, humanity evolves into two species. They are so separate from each other, those who are advantaged and disadvantaged. The the, the tale is more complex than that. But but those were the sort of the highlights that we wanted to plant in the reader's mind. It's... There's a lot of, obviously, uh, difficult things and a lot of challenges, and I do think the democratic power here is is essential. Whether people want to invest in that or be distracted by other things is, is, is up for debate. But you end the book by giving many ideas in the final chapter of how to fix some of the problems, some of which you've detailed here. But um, there, you give, uh, there's this kind of three prongs of, for improving things, so altering the narrative and changing norms, cultivating countervailing powers and policy solutions based on new narrative research and expertise. So just give us, there's a lot of difficult things here we've discussed and some really interesting historical things, but not that it has to be optimistic, but what are some of the ways in which you feel we could uh, have some impact to 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 at least balance things out a little bit more? Well, you know, uh, we derive these three prongs from studying another period in which some very innovative business leaders that built new technologies, came to become economically and politically too dominant. And that was the age of the Gilded Age, the age of the robber barons, when people like Morgan, uh, the banker, uh, Andrew Carnegie, or John Rockefeller uh, became 
enormous monopolies and controlled critical resources such as finance, oil, and transport. And senators were bought and sold. Inequality was exploding. And ultimately, perhaps against all odds, the U.S. political system reformed and and became very creative in developing a solution to that. It started by recognizing the problem, changing the narrative from one in which, you know, we were all looking up to these robber barons to one in which we started so seeing their faults, their the way they repressed workers, the way that they intimidated rivals. It progressed via the progressive movement building countervailing powers to them via media, via new institutions, the direct election of the Senate, new tools in the hands of the federal government, and then specific policies such as regulations, uh, using the Sherman Act and the Clayton Act, uh, Federal Reserve, new regulatory agencies in finance, in in transport, uh, and so on. So we think that uh, in the current era, a similar three-step process is necessary. And I would say 50% of the story is really changing the narrative, recognizing that it is both feasible and desirable to have what I would call pro-human AI, pro-human digital technology, digital technologies that empower, make more productive the humans. They put them in the driving seat. Mm-hmm. And that that's not going to happen by itself. It's not going to happen if we view yeah. the future of technology to be in the hands of Sam Altman and Elon Musk, or perhaps the competition between the two. So that's the change in the narrative and change in perspective. That's 50% of the story in my mind. Mm. But as soon as we recognize that, we will also become more aware that we do not have the tools to make it, to take a different path. And that will necessitate more worker voice, better civil society organization, and more independent media. Look, today, the media is mesmerized by the tech parents. How could we expect the uh, mainstream media to be a good control mechanism over them when they are all uh, involved in writing how exciting and how colorful these tech parents are? Mm-hmm. So we need proper accounting accountability mechanisms for them. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I think we need new laws, mm-hmm. new ways of making democracy work better. And then we also suggest some specific policy levers. And But we are quite open, Simon and I are quite open, that we think these are just ideas. Other people, if they buy into our perspective, they may come up with different policy ideas, and some of them may be better. And look, some of these policy ideas are going to not work that well. They may even backfire, but you have to try. The only way you can do regulation is by developing regulatory muscle, by having energy, thought, and resources go into regulation. So some of those ideas are, I think, pretty easy. For example, in the United States today, we have a tax system that penalizes you if you hire workers because you have to pay income tax, plus you have to have payroll taxes, and it subsidizes if you install machinery or software. So that creates an imbalance that encourages too much automation. So let's create a more level playing field in terms of taxation. We think that today in the online space, social media, and many other areas in which data is involved, the monetization model based on sending individualized digital ads creates a lot of social problems. And moreover, it precludes other types of business model because it lures in people through free products, and then it makes it very difficult for alternative 
products that are for money or for subscription to emerge. And that creates an environment in which new innovations, especially new human empowering innovations, become harder to develop. So we propose a digital ad tax. We think we are already at a point where data has been monopolized and data has been expropriated. So a very important set of ideas is about who owns data and how it's going to be protected. So especially with creative data, it is essential that tech companies don't just use people's data without any permission. And so we think that there needs to be property rights over data and probably these property rights need to be collectively held because an individual cannot exercise those rights. Mm -hmm. It is also obvious that we are dealing today with the largest corporations that humanity has ever witnessed. And these size confers on them enormous social power as well as economic power. Mm. And if we really want to redirect technological change towards more new tasks for humans, new information for humans, that social power of companies such as Facebook, uh, Google, Microsoft, Amazon is going to become a problem. So I think both for antitrust and broader Brandeisian reasons, breaking up some of these companies will be necessary. Mm -hmm. And I think ultimately, we also need better involvement from the government, not, as I said, to supplant the market system, Mm -hmm. but to provide incentives for more socially beneficial uses of technology in the same way that government subsidies played an important role in spearheading green technologies, wind and solar instead of just fossil fuels, we need more pro-human directions of AI to be subsidized at a small scale, starting experimentally and finding our way through it. But those are sort of uh, issues that we have to consider as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you've written a a fabulous book. And sometimes I ask this for guests, uh, what's the, if someone picks up your book, they're in a a Barnes and Noble or something, or they get it on Amazon or wherever, (laughs) a local bookstore. And they pick it up. What's like the one or two things you want the average person? You know, they read 500 pages of all of this wonderful history and, and data. And what is it that you hope they walk away with that says, "Yes, that's what I was trying to get at"? And, and what, what were well, those if, two if things? The, if they get, if they get uh, the following three ideas, which are all, I think, very simple, I would be extremely happy. Mm. One that technology creates winners and losers. So we have to recognize that from the beginning. Second, that how we use technology is a choice. So who will become the winners and who will become the losers? How we develop that technology, that's a tremendous choice. And we have to approach that new technologies recognizing that because if we don't, then we are abrogating our responsibility to have a say over that choice. And third, you know, when you are told that automating work is just the way that new technological work, uh, the, the new technologies are going to develop, and we have nothing to be afraid of automation. Well, that's only half of the truth. That's right. We should welcome automation. Simon and I welcome automation, but we have to find new ways of making the unique, versatile, and very valuable human skills also used productively in the production process. That's quite feasible. That's where the choice comes in. It's automate at the same time as you also empower and make humans more productive. Mm, Yeah, that's absolutely fantastic. The book is called Power and Progress, Our 1,000-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. Uh, It's out everywhere. 
uh, Daron, what can I say? This was this was so much fun, an absolute honor and a big privilege. I've liked all of your research, all of your work, and I will continue to uh, to get out there and support as I hope listeners do. And uh, what is the uh, best place to find you? If there is any place to find you, uh, where are the best places? Well, I am at uh, MIT. I'm on MIT's website, and Simon and I are part of a new MIT uh, uh, initiative, uh, Shaping the Future of Work uh, mm. initiative, nice. which is very much devoted in recognizing and developing policy ideas related to questions of how we can make a better future of work together with david otter and that website also has information on our book and podcasts and uh, and upcoming events and uh, it was my pleasure and privilege to be on this podcast thank you for inviting me and uh, i'm happy to come back uh, in the future if you yeah, want absolutely. to continue the conversation absolutely I would, I would absolutely love that maybe we can talk more about why nations fail at some point or all the other new work that you're doing so absolutely big 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 thanks i appreciate it thank you